Hello and welcome to the CRV Podcast. My name is Jeff Wright. I'm one of the regular contributors to the CRV website. On this episode, I am talking with Taiwan Klein about all the ways critical theory and critical race theory show up in the broader culture. Taiwan Klein is, as you will hear in this episode, a native of Memphis, Tennessee, who grew up in Dakar, Senegal. He is a graduate of both Rutgers Law School and Westminster Theological Seminary. He lives in Philadelphia with his wife, Rachel. Taiwan has written for Conciliar Post and Founders Ministries. At the time this episode is releasing, he's currently in the midst of a very interesting series on founders examining Richard Baxter's advice about obeying the magistrate during times of pestilence, assault by enemies, and fire. I'll put a link to his writings in the show notes. Okay, let's get going on my conversation with Taiwan Klein. Taiwan Klein, thank you so much for taking time to be on the CRV podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. I'm excited to pick your brain and and hear some of your uh, expertise brought to bear on these questions I want to ask you. So, um, I'm, I'm I know you've written for Founders Ministries, which is mm-hmm. like this podcast, SBC facing. But I I think mm-hmm. there's a chance some of our listeners might not be super familiar with your background and your work. And so, if you would start us off. Could you sketch out, you know, where you're from, how you were converted, what theological tribe you belong to nowadays? Yeah, absolutely. So I am uh, originally from Memphis, Tennessee. That's where I was born. And then as a a kid, I was over in uh, Dakar, Senegal, where my parents were IMB missionaries. Um, And then we came back uh, and my dad pastored in Knoxville for a little bit. And then we moved up to Ohio, where my Parents still live. They, uh, my dad is an SBC pastor uh, there, so I grew definitely grew up in the SBC um, all the way through, and was in an SBC church until um, I guess until I went to to grad school um, out here in Philadelphia. So um, I am no longer in an SBC church, but uh, pledge fealty to the 1689 Confession um, as my uh, my standard for doctrine and orthodoxy. Um, so that's kind of my uh, my affiliation with the SBC. Still, still very um, concerned about anything going on in the SBC, and to try to pay attention uh, to all of that. Um, I have a, a uh, love for the denomination, and especially certain figures in the denomination, like Al Mohler, have been uh, formative to my thinking. Uh, so, really appreciate the work coming out of out of there still, even amidst some of the uh, the more concerning elements. Mm, yeah, certainly. Well, you know, uh, I'm thrilled to hear what you just said, because we have this epidemic in Baptist circles of sending mm. the, these Baptist guys off to good Presbyterian uh, institutions, <laughs> and they all come yeah. out paedo-Baptist, man, and it breaks my heart every time. Mm. So. Yeah, yeah. There, I will say at Westminster, where I where I just finished my, uh, my grad school there, they... Um, there is a strong and growing representation of, of guys who would, I think, pledge fealty to the 1689 confession and, and still do. I mean, they're not, are not being swayed. Uh, try as the seminary might, as the professors might to uh, dissuade them. Um, so there is a, a good representation there, as there is of, of other denominations, such as Anglicans and, and some other groups. Obviously, it's predominantly Presbyterian. Um, but I did not uh, come to Reformed theology through going to seminary. It was before that when I was still in the SBC uh, denominationally. Uh, it's not that I've repudiated them. It just was a happenstance of what, what churches were available when I was living in New Jersey and then over in this area. So, um, But came to Reformed theology in, in the SBC and, and in part through um, 
SBC figures directing me that way. Of the Nine Marks guys are, of course, were influential on me. Mark Dever, as I said, Al Mohler. Um, my dad did a uh, doctorate at, at Southern later in in life when he was pastoring, and it was through a lot of the uh, work from guys there like Donald Whitney and and some of them, uh, Michael Haken, that uh, helped push me towards uh, certainly Tom Nettles that direction. Um, so I still would. Uh, I would say that the there are plenty of people in SBC doing good work um, and, the, and uh, probably fighting against the trend you're speaking of, but um, it may it may be uh, to no avail. I'm not sure, but it it was not my story. So, yeah. Well, hey, to any of our brothers in Westminster or or uh, some similar educational environment, stay strong, stay stay strong, brothers. Uh, we need you in, right. the, in the Credo Baptist well, ranks. Well, and it may be more of a dispositional issue. I, I don't know if it's as soon as someone wants me to do something, it's what I, I fight against. And that's probably a, a sinful tendency, but it, it kept me going through through seminary. So, <laughs> Well, brother, you're not far from the Southern Baptist Convention with that statement. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> well, so we, we kind of brought it up a little bit there inadvertently. You've you've just been through mm. uh, some, some pretty intense educational training. My sense is... Mm. From reading your material, hearing you on the Sword and Trial podcast from Founders Ministries, mm-hmm. that maybe in your educational work, um, it, that, that's how you became aware of critical theory. Is that correct, or am I wrong there? Yeah, that no, that is correct. I mean, it's um, certainly not at Westminster. There doesn't seem to be anything go, bad going on there in that regard. Um, but going to, I, I went to law school at Rutgers Law School over in New Jersey. And um, as you, you may or may not know, the listeners may or may not know, um, a lot of the manifestation of critical theory or critical theories uh, came out of or originates from um, things going on in law schools during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That seems to be when it really gets going over on this side of the pond. Um, and specifically, critical race theory comes out of the uh, is a branch off of the critical legal studies movement. So. In in law school, I came into it's not like there is a, you know, one L year critical theory 101 course that's required or something like that. But this um, type of thinking, this ideology that's been marinating in the academy for decades and is now making its way out into the mainstream culture for various reasons, um, it, it uh, you know, is is permeating in the um, in the academy and especially the law school. So you can come into contact with it, especially in your later courses, especially those that deal with policy issues, um, and not really quite know what you're looking at. Um, but as I began to see some, uh, specifically with the critical legal studies movement, was was how I got interested in this because um, of, of some of the claims it makes about law in general that I was coming into contact with through various scholarship is what initially sparked my interest. So it was purely academic. And then um, probably 2015-ish, 2014 maybe, um, began seeing similarities to what I was investigating, doing opposition research on in law school uh, to kind of figure it out for myself, began seeing instances of that or similarities in not only the broader culture, but even in uh, broad evangelical culture. So that's what became concerning and um, was the, the impetus for me to get deeper into this stuff because the academy is always going to be doing crazy things, but uh, when you see some of this stuff in the church, it becomes uh, much more concerning uh, as a Christian, obviously. Yeah, I remember years ago, I read a book by Michael Horton. I think the title was uh, Where in the World is the Church? And he makes mm. the point that pop culture is downstream from high culture and often what shows mm-hmm. up in pop culture mm-hmm. 
first reared its head in the academy. I think absolutely. I, I'm not sure if everybody shares this assumption, but in my part of the world, I think there is a significant number of people who think, ah, the academy is sort of a ivory tower that doesn't really mm. relate to the to the workaday world. And I just don't think mm. that's a safe assumption. I think this stuff comes down the pike pretty quickly and pretty directly. Yeah, no, I could, couldn't agree more with that. Um, and in fact, that kind of objection, um, default maybe position that regular people have uh, often is is sometimes weaponized by the, uh, or I've seen it weaponized by people who are in fact at least dabbling with this kind of thinking and trying to use it, trying to fit it into their theology. And they will use that kind of objection um, that you're talking about in defense of themselves. So they will, um, you know, kind of deflect from the accusation of you're using critical theory, critical race theory is the one most relevant for the SBC right now. Um, and they will, you know, say something like, well, that is, that's the, this academic stuff um, that's over there in, uh, in the ivory tower. That's not what I'm doing. I'm just looking at the, at the Bible. Um, I don't even know what that is. And they will deflect in that kind of way. And it may um, work in some ways because of what you're talking about of where people are not concerned about what's going on in higher academia. So they're not able to find what's going on in higher academia when it breaks out into the culture and is, and spot it so that they can defend themselves against it. So I think that that's absolutely right. And it's a problem. Um, and it, it's just not true. It's not how things work. Uh, the quote from Horton is exactly how, at least in this instance, it is working. Well, I realize, listener, as you're kind of jumping in here, that we're talking about critical theory and critical race theory without having defined our terms. Um, mm-hmm. Now, uh, Timon has written extensively both at Conciliar Post and founders on the subject. Uh, for our for mm-hmm. our podcast, we did an extensive interview with Neil Shinby on the subject. And so to some degree, I guess I'm going to assume some familiarity here. But um, mm-hmm. Timon, would you say you have a working definition that sort of accessible to the layman for what we mean when we say critical theory or critical race theory? Yeah. Um, what I what I can do, I think, is most helpful, at least the way I think about it, is give you four kind of key tenets really quick, and I'm happy to expound on any of them. Um, but any, any critical theory, um, and critical theory is the umbrella term, uh, really is um, getting at the, the various forms or manifestations of this type of thinking as applied to um, certain subject areas. So we obviously have critical race theory, there's queer theory, there's family theory, there's critical pedagogy, and on and on you can go. So there's all these branches of it that are all critical theories, critical social theories, and they're all doing the same kind of thing, just fitted to their their subject matter. So the, the four tenets I would lay out are, in any critical theory, you're going to, to begin with, as an assumption, um, an oppression or oppressor and oppressed dichotomy, right, which is a sort of repurposed Marxist conflict theory. Um, that he would have applied to to class conflict, they are applying it to um, some other kind of conflict, some other kind of definition of class. And so there is always an oppressor class and there's an oppressed class. And you, you divide the world up um, in various ways according to that basic dichotomy. And you fit people into one slot or the other. The, the second tenet um, would be uh, something like false consciousness from Marx. Um, where in, in our case, dealing with critical race theory in particular, you'll hear people talk, of course, about being woke. And what woke is getting at is uh, it's referring to the people who have become critically conscious. 
and critical consciousness is a sort of blend of standpoint epistemology um, with acknowledgement or realization of uh, the, the power structures that they think exist in society. Um, and then your acknowledgement of yourself, how you are situated within those power structures. And that helps define uh, your class position as well. So the false consciousness that everyone else has through critical consciousness, you transcend that. You kind of have the, the wool pulled off of your eyes. Um, so that would be a, the second tenet I would highlight, um, both of which are rooted in Marxist thinking without question. Uh, the third one, which is where a lot of the postmodern elements come in, and those ebb and flow, um, depending on the critical theory discipline you're dealing with. Uh, for instance, they're very um, emphasized in something like post-colonial theory, um, slightly less so in uh, critical race theory. But nevertheless, this tenet um, is it seems to be present in all of them, which is um, a view of language um, that predominantly draws off of, off of Michel Foucault, who was a, a French philosopher in the 60s and a uh, postmodernist. And the thing that they typically use from him, or you will see out on the popular level, is what he would refer to as power knowledge. So it's the view that um, knowledge is dictated by um, the, the language to some extent, um, and those go hand in hand. And so control of the language really controls knowledge um, of what you're dealing with. So that's why you see a lot of conflict over how we talk about things. Um, and then the final tenet, it would be a, a more political one and again, a more Marxist one, which is uh, the end goal of all this, which is liberation. Um, and this is liberation from all constraints of the oppressor. Um, and when you're dealing with critical theory because of the neo-Marxist uh, adjustments that were made by the Frankfurt School drawing off of uh, Antonio Gramsci, um, they, they were talking about cultural liberation as much as, as, much as physical, if not more so. Um, so it's liberation from the constraints of the hegemony, which is a Gramscian term uh, that is the way that the oppressor controls everyone. It's essentially an idea of brainwashing them. Um, and so in our case, it's the white, cisgendered, heteronormative male hegemony. All of those are the norms of society. They control and are the, the standard from which everything else works. Um, and so they oppress people. All of the others, the people who are not any of those things, are oppressed by this. So the end goal of any critical theory is liberation from these constraints. So that, that is how I would, in any critical theory discipline you deal with, you're going to have those and possibly more, but at least those primary tenets and goals in play. Well, thank you for that. That's super informative. And also, listener, that, that's kind of a bibliography for you. You can throw those um, those names, um, schools, uh, ideological traditions into Google and find more um What I'd like to do is kind of draw on your obvious expertise on this subject and talk about how we're seeing critical theory present itself in our culture. I think probably mm. most people listening are going to say, oh, yeah, cities are on fire. There are people scuffling in the street, uh, you know, or worse. Uh, but, yeah. but where else would we see the expression of the idea, right? Ideas have consequences. People mm. are going to live in light yeah. of what they understand to be ultimate truth. So where are these things popping up? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's amazing because 
you know, I started looking into this stuff and reading the primary sources, uh, which is endless. I'm still always trying to catch up, it seems like. But back, um, you know, several years ago, or at least five years ago now, became introduced to some of this. And uh, for a while, would had this nagging feeling that I was engaging in a conspiracy theory, that this was not mm. real. Um, now that is... Uh, would be a hard belief to hold uh, if you just look at the culture on a daily basis. Like you're saying, put aside even the most violent, disruptive manifestations of some of this ideology, um, especially when you look at organizations like Black Lives Matter that uh, incontrovertibly influenced by critical race theory, if you just look at their um, belief statement. But even just looking out into um, the, the general culture, looking at the, the news sources, uh, you know, the opinion pages of uh, the leading uh, media organizations, uh, you will you will see this stuff almost constantly. And I, I know other people have done this. I think Neil Shimby may have done this of tracking the increase, the uptick in usage of, of certain terminology that is only originating from critical theories. And so he is, I think, you know, looking at around 2010 or so, just a huge spike in the use in uh, regular sources that we all read, the New York Times, whatever it is, a huge uptick in usage of terms like white privilege, anti-racism, white fragility, of course, of all of those things, and using them in the way um, that critical theorists intend them to be used. Um, so this is, is an ideology that is all-consuming. I talk about it as a, a worldview because it's uh, used and situated to answer the big questions that any worldview does answer. Um, you see this in something like the 1619 Project, of course, and uh, which is a thing that uh, is is very important to pay attention to because so much of the debate that will be uh, sparked by the insertion of critical theories into the culture and the public discourse, the popular imagination, is a assessment of, of history. Um, that is a, a lot of what it's taken up with because it's very interested in uh, how they will say problematizing, deconstructing, and dismantling oppressive narratives, which feed oppressive norms and oppressive structures. So they're very interested in, um, as the the authors of the 1619 Project have admitted, um, they're, they're not interested in doing history in the way that you and I would think about history being done. They, uh, because they were being criticized by almost every noteworthy historian on the subject for factual inaccuracies and the like, um, so they admitted that what they're concerned with is not so much history, but a, a, a warfare over the um, cultural memory of our society, which is very different. Um, and so this is a, an instance of mounting a counter hegemony that Antonio Gramsci would say you have to do to combat the prevailing hegemony. And you do that by challenging the way we think of ourselves and the way we think of our history. And so that is uh, the 1619 Project is a great example of how, uh, which won a Pulitzer Prize, by the way, and is now being um, used to develop curriculum for primary schools. Um, so that is, is a great example that it probably most people have heard of, of something of, of critical theory influencing broader culture, um, apart from even uh, some of the most obvious and, and kind of disruptive instances we'll see if you look out your window right now. You know, that point you just made, and this is my summary uh, with the 1619 Project of mm. kind of reimagining our country's historical mythology. 
has mm-hmm. a surface level mm-hmm. insidiousness to it. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in the teaching I do, I, I recently needed to read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And in the introduction, mm. he he actually deals with patriotism. And I thought, well, I'm, mm. I'm going to bring mm-hmm. right up right now. And yeah. he makes a note that you never want to you never want to hide the flaws of the national heroes mm-hmm. that you have. But they are mm-hmm. important as a kind of mythological figure to hand on values. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my thoughts went right to the 1619 project. And I thought, well, mm-hmm. y- y- you may disagree with these these folks pushing this idea, but you can't say they aren't clever and don't know their strategy. They, they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. We mm-hmm. need an imaginary yeah. to to kind of transmit mm-hmm. these values. And, and they're they're fighting the battle on the right place. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's been the case for every society. I mean, if you look at something like the Aeneid. Uh, that that's, everyone knows that's mm-hmm. not accurate history. It's not meant to be that. It's meant to be something that gets at the the essence of the society, the virtues that they were wanting to perpetuate through their society. Now, I think our histories of the founding era are are quite a bit more than mythology, but they do play a particular role in helping us understand ourselves and what our aspirations are. So there's no objection to someone uh analyzing our society and pointing out how we have not lived up to those aspirations. That's what the first civil rights movement more or less does. And and none of us would object to that. Um, but that is a distinction to be made between the first civil rights movement and um, what's currently going on. They would like to attach themselves to that. Um, but it's inaccurate to do so because their, their goal in attacking the cultural memory is not to reinforce it or to uh, enable us to better live up to the values and aspirations set down at the, in the founding era or thereafter. Their goal is to completely disrupt uh, our memory of those things, our actionable memory, um, so that there can be liberation from the things that they say are oppressive from the beginning, and so that they can, um, in some sense, mount a cultural revolution. Uh, that's not hyperbole to say that. That is part of their goal. It doesn't have to necessarily be violent, but it is a total disruption um, of all of that. So their their uh, goal in doing all of that is is not an honorable goal um, in the in the way that they want to use this project. Uh, to do this. Um, it's not about making history more accurate. It's not about us helping understand ourselves better. It's about resentment and repudiation of the given um, and instability because instability is necessary for recreation in a sense. So the, they need to disrupt those predominant narratives um, in order to disrupt the predominant values. And you see that in the uh, the recent chart that the Smithsonian Museum put out, um, the Museum of, I, I think, of African-American history, um, where they attributed things like uh, individualism, nuclear family, the uh, emphasis on the written word, and many other things to uh, white supremacy. And then the 1619 Project will say that the entire essence of America, the American ethos, is white supremacy. So that you can see the connection between the cultural memory and the values, and they're on both fronts, they are wanting to disrupt those. Well, I would throw two ideas at you to kind of, mm. uh, I don't know, move, uh, well, make sure that we've paid uh, attention to to where this is found in the lived experience of the average churchgoer and maybe the, mm. the average pastor. Now, I assume that someone who hit play on an episode with the title this one has is sort of mm. sensitive to critical theory. They want to know more. They're probably already engaged in looking at it. But two things mm. I would highlight and then ask you to critique uh, would be, 
One, if you're listening to this and you pastor a church or you're involved in some kind of local church leadership, and there are people in your church who have uh, who, who are employed in companies large enough to have an HR department. Uh, mm-hmm. Rod Dreher, I think, turned me on to this. Uh, ask them, pull them aside and just ask if you're having any sensitivity training or any mm-hmm. uh, any form of HR training that's going to help us have a more uh, diverse w- workplace. And I suspect when you ask that question, you're going to find out that critical race theory has made it to the cubicle. D- does that sound reasonable mm-hmm. to you, Tommen? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I would say the, as bad as the the academics are in the uh, in the academy for pushing this stuff out into the wider culture, they are enabled um, by exactly what you're talking about, which are really administrators. Um, we've seen some of in academia itself the crimes of the administrators in the recent. Um, kind of debacle surrounding both Harvard and Yale with their admissions policies. Um, Well, that is uh, administrators being influenced by this ideology. And in the same way, um, the phenomenon of so-called woke capitalism Mm. is evidencing the same thing in the corporate world. And I, um, I know anecdotally from people I've talked to and people that have emailed me about this same thing that Dreher is talking about, that that does seem to be the the case, that you're getting anti-bias training, sensitivity training. Um, I mean, the uh, the City Journal, if you're familiar with it, has done great work on uncovering this in the federal government in their HR departments of sending, um, in particular departments, only the white men to white fragility training. So that that is, I mean, I do not think Dreher is off. I appreciate Rod Dreher a lot. He's often cast as a sort of fear monger, and uh, he's being vindicated on a daily basis, it seems, lately. So um, I would I would say that is absolutely the case. And regular people, depending on where they work, are going to increasingly encounter this. Um, and something very real, a credible threat is going to be on the line, which is their livelihood. Um, so that that is a, a very real and present danger of this ideology in uh, as it works out in a way that actually touches people's lives. If that still doesn't persuade you, listener, uh, maybe do this. Think about a small group setting or Sunday school, maybe maybe just a meal, fellowship meal. And whether or not you've heard someone say on some important question, something like speaking as a white woman or I'm just a white guy. Uh, those kind of qualifiers to me show up more than I would expect in my, to be frank, uh, conservative Christian environment. And mm. my conclusion has been that, man, critical theory has really gotten down to the instinctual level uh, of our discourse. Mm. Mm-hmm. Now, you yeah. may hear that and say, nah, that's probably a little too paranoid, Jeff. So um, a- am I right to encourage people to listen for that kind of language in their conversations? Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely want to riff on this for a second because the there, there's two things I would I would say about that phenomenon, which I've experienced as well. Um, one, what those people are doing, wittingly or unwittingly, which I'll get to in a second, um, when they begin their conversation or their statement uh, as a insert um, your identity markers, is one they are being influenced by. The uh, the thought processes, the the sensibility, as I often call it, of intersectionality, which is which uh, forces you to take stock of uh, your particular identities as they are relevant to critical theory, and then uh, understand how they intersect um, for for better or worse, and how in some situations you are an oppressor if you are a 
uh, white woman, there's situations where you would be the oppressor because of your whiteness. If you're a black male, there's situations where you would be the oppressor as well, as well because of your maleness. But on both, in both of those cases, there's situations where because of their race or gender, they would be the oppressed. And so it's forcing you to recognize your situation. And that is, if you look at, I've, I've written on this at Founders in a three-part series on Black Lives Matter, their statement, uh, so, and trying to highlight some of the words that we would just uh, fly past reading it that are, the, that are very significant. One of those is, is reflexivity. And the idea in critical race theory of being self-reflexive is to constantly be aware of your position within the power dynamic. And so they would um, encourage that kind of uh, dialogue where you begin everything with a recognition and assertion of your position within the uh, power dynamics and your lived experience, which, which is a drawing off of the critical consciousness. So lived experience only comes to those who are living life experiencing life with awareness of their position within the power dynamics. So that's why you would begin your statement by showing that. So it's, it's all part of a, a sort of ritual, a woke ritual uh, that is infecting our conversations. Now, the last thing I'll say about that is with regular people, there is, um, I think Peter Bogosian wrote an article at the Wall Street Journal called talking about idea laundering, what he calls idea laundering. And that is, uh, I would encourage everybody to read it because it's exactly what is happening in Christian circles. The books that most people are reading, if they're interested in racial reconciliation, uh, other justice, other very good things because of their Christian instincts, they will come across books that um, will use some of this language and some of these ideas, but they don't cite the critical theorists themselves. They'll cite the last Christian who wrote about this. And then you go to that one and check those citations, and you're either two or three degrees separated from the actual critical theorists themselves. But people who are reading those books that are in the Christian bookstore are not realizing what is being laundered to them. And so they're, they're sucking in a lot of that information, a lot of that lingo, and then using it because it's also reinforced by the broader culture right now. Those are just words that are all of a sudden in our vocabulary. And they, they start using them almost unwittingly. I don't think most people being influenced by this either realize that they are or um, are, are not meaning anything bad by it, are not trying to dismantle the hegemony but are simply talking the way they hear other people talking and are, and are then talking the same way uncritically. That is such a fascinating idea. The um, idea laundering, I miss that. And that has a tremendous mm. explanatory power for mm. how quick the uptake has been in uh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. evangelical circles with critical, critical theory and critical race theory. I, mm -hmm. I have to be honest, I, I had planned at this point to sort of feed you some tweets and ask you to comment on them. But I, I, my appetite, I guess, is really to talk about the Southern Baptist Convention as a major mm. part of evangelicalism. And I know mm. you were writing at least as early as November of 2019 about the Southern mm -hmm. Baptist Convention's relationship to critical theory. Um, was that your first published piece on the subject or had you written before that? You know, I, I can't remember if I had um, the founders piece that is now in the uh, the book that they just published, the By What Standard um, book, a series of essays with Bodie Bauckham and Chad Vegas and some other people, which is, is really good and helpful. 
Um, that piece that's now published in there, which is also online, I wrote it in the fall of 2019. Um, and so I don't think it came out until the beginning of 2020. And the article you may be referring to was then as well, but I may have written something before. I can't remember, but obviously the whole Resolution 9 thing is what drove, um, I think, a lot of people to uh, get informed about this and then and start trying to analyze it. And so what I started doing is I wasn't seeing the type of analysis that I wanted to see. And so I decided to try to do it. <laughs> so that may be the, the beginning of when I started doing that would be 2019. But it was definitely um, the, the original impetus for that was, was at least partially what was going on in the SBC, which is in a different way also manifesting in the PCA. So it's um, as well as Anglican and Catholic circles. So it's not like the SBC is the, uh, the, the only one having problems with this. And that's to, to be expected because of how this, this stuff works. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I, you know, I, I, you don't have to uh, carry the weight for this. This is my own conclusion, but I tend to think that leaven <laughs> works like leaven in a lump. <laughs> it spreads. Yeah. 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 Um, Absolutely. And the, the input, you know, the SBC right now is a, is a complicated scenario because there are, uh, has to be the vast majority of people are in a situation like we were just discussing of, of how they're being influenced by it. But unfortunately, they're, they're being a, done a disservice by many of their leaders. Um, some of the leaders and some of the people behind Resolution 9 um, definitely know what they're doing. They definitely know what they have their hands on. Other leaders are simply doing a bad job of charting the path through all of it. Um, so I don't see a um, ton of help, actually, for regular SBC congregants from uh, their leadership right now. I would say Al Mohler's doing a great job and always has with this, um, but obviously his influence is soft influence right now. Um, so many of the appointed leaders that, that drive the uh, denomination, at least officially, um, I've been very disappointed with, uh, just watching from the outside, as it were, at this point. Well, I deeply resonate with that. Um, in fact, you know, you talk about the two groups, the the people who know what they're doing and then the people who mm. are just doing a poor job navigating. And I really, mm. as a pastor, my frustrations are mostly with the second group because yeah. it's sort yeah. of baked into the gig to uh, know what threats there are to the church and try to move yeah. to uh, not just protect the flock, but to oppose the wolves yeah. that have shown up on, on the perimeter and yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. disappointed in the state of our convention on that front. <laughs> Maybe if we could zoom out and I've, this is loaded in that I have conclusions here and I'm, uh, I'm going to, mm. I'm going to pick your brain from my conclusions, but on the subject of critical theory, critical race theory and the Christian faith, does critical mm. race theory have anything to offer the Christian faith as a help? Are we lacking something that critical race theory can, mm. can give us? Well, I think that's certainly what people think. Um, what I, what's interesting about all this is, uh, you know, standard kind of apologetics courses, I think, would lead you to look at something like this and assume the replacement theology narrative of we are all, we are made uh, for religion. We are made for the worship of God. And we often, um, though, as, as sinners, replace God with something else, some other idol in our heart. And so you can you can investigate worldviews by figuring out how that's been done. You can look at Islam that way and, and many other religions. Um, and although I would certainly characterize critical theory as a worldview, and in that sense a religion, especially as it's manifested in what uh, James Lindsay calls critical social justice, which is the critical theory-backed social justice movement, 
um, I would certainly characterize that as a religion, but with Christians, what's interesting is there's not been a replacement as such. There's been a layering on top or a filling of gaps that they have in their theology with this. So it's acting as a, as a very strong supplement. Um, I don't think that's a tenable move at all, and I can talk about why, but that seems to help be, be how people are using it. So they perceive uh, an ineptitude in their theology as they have it for dealing with certain things that the culture is demanding that they deal with. Now, that's a problem in itself, to be reactionary in your theology. I think that always leads to bad places. But there is a another sense in which, um, it, of course, our theology has to help make sense of the world, and, I, and it should and it can. Um, but if your theology is lacking in your ability to do that, and I think there's plenty of reasons why evangelical theology, as people commonly hold it, has lacked that for the past several decades. Um, when your theology doesn't have the ability to do that or you don't perceive that it does, you look for help elsewhere. And so what you see out of a lot of evangelicals is, is sort of a desperate attempt to justify the use of this ideology in their theology. And I've written before of where I think the the primary conflict right now, even though it may not seem this way, is uh, it's not battle for the Bible 2.0. It is battle for the hermeneutics. Mm -hmm. And you can see this in the way that um, certain evangelical leaders who are still within the fold, there's been plenty of who, who have left, um, but are still in the fold attempting to justify the use of this ideology. And they um, oftentimes do that by inserting it into the sort of back end of their hermeneutics. And so when you get to discussions about um, application and uh, sort of illustration and some of those things that you would do with, with your preaching and, and everything else, that's when you will see it slip in. The problem is with hermeneutics, it's not just linear. There is a, um, a sort of circular aspect to, to hermeneutics where your application is not irrelevant for your interpretation. They go hand in hand. Uh, you may think you're doing one first, but there is a sense in which how you're going to apply the text must be informed by the interpretation and in some ways vice versa. And certainly our um, systematic theology, we draw from Scripture, but then it also does help us uh, formulate categories and organize our interpretation of Scripture itself. We, we do that. It goes back and forth. And so you will see this stuff creeping into the systematic theology and certain aspects of hermeneutics and people using it that way, but still being able to drop back with the necessary SBC caveats that they affirm the inerrancy of Scripture and its authority and its veracity and, you know, every, every other fundamental. And they can do that um, and not be totally lying. And I think they believe they can really do it, but it's slipping into certain aspects of our interpretation and our systematic theology um, by talking about, um, you know, how our interpretation and our application of the text has been culturally influenced. And uh, you've had lectures at Southeastern Seminary recently, uh, people, you know, writing for The Witness, Jamar Tisby's um, website that are professors at Southern Baptist Seminaries, writing about these kind of, kinds of aspects. And you're not that far away from beginning to criticize other cultural aspects as being the result of white supremacy. And you're not that far away from what the Smithsonian Museum was saying. You're, you're creeping that direction. Um, and I do think it all goes back to people thinking they, that their theology is inept for answering certain questions. And it's not, but it, it, they don't seem to be able to have the ability to, to figure that out without. And so critical theory comes in as very convenient, culturally acceptable, 
way to deal with this. And so it's a it's yet again a desperate attempt by evangelicals to remain culturally relevant. Um, to, you will hear guys talking about preserving the public witness, which seems to really just be synonymous for social capital, um, not about the purity of doctrine and proclamation, but of, of cultural acceptability. Mm. Um, and so being about that is very dangerous. Um, for instance, I, you will hear people, I've heard evangelical pastors talk about this in sermons about being anti-racist, and they will want to say, this is just synonymous for being anti-sin. And of course, who is uh, who is pro-racist? Well, no one. So you've already got very effective propaganda because you can't deny it. Um, same thing with Antifa. Who's pro-fascist? Well, no one. But that's not exactly what's going on. And so, but if you read Ibram X. Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist, which is either one or two on the Amazon bestseller list right now behind White Fragility, um, he will talk about how to be thoroughly anti-racist, you can't just be, one, you can't be neutral. There is nothing that is non-racist. So you're either a racist perpetuating the status quo or you're anti-racist, which means you're actively dismantling the race, racist hegemony and the, and the structures, the oppressive structures. But then two, because critical race theorists more or less view oppression in the aggregate, wherever oppression is, is tantamount to anti-black oppression. So Kendi will say, you can't, if you're really anti-racist, you must be anti, uh, anti-homosexual bias. You must be anti, um, you know, anything, anything to doing, doing with sexuality that are obviously morals we would have as Christians. Those are, um, homophobic and those are, um, uh, sexist. They're misogynist because if, especially if you're a complementarian, all of those things must be discarded if you're going to be a real anti-racist because it all goes together. And so people, you know, want to latch on to this idea of anti-racism. That sounds good. Everyone wants you to affirm it. And they either do realize, which is very problematic, or probably don't quite realize what they're getting into. Um, but they're leading so many people along with them down this path. And the, the real problem with Resolution 9 is now doing some of these things becomes defensible. When you are talking about critical race theory, you now point to the resolution from the denomination and say, hey, I'm allowed to do this. I'm still affirming scripture, but I'm allowed to, to supplement this uh, with uh, an ideology that's coming outside of scripture. Well, there is so much there. Thank you for uh, for that comment. I, I want to follow up on a bunch of it. One, though, I just want to say I appreciate you noting that not everyone who's dabbling or using critical race theory is self-consciously doing so uh, as a mm -hmm. revolutionary within the church, that, that some of this is mm -hmm. accidental or, you know, from a place of not being super well informed. Um, for sure. For sure. Also, following up on your point that basically critical race theory becomes a crutch uh, in in aid of where we think our theology is deficient. Uh, do mm -hmm. you think evangelicals <laughs> systematically failed to cultivate a good sense of what the Bible has to say on the subject of justice, how to be empathetic to my neighbor. And that's mm. the gap that critical race theory is filling. Or would you say, no, I think the perceived gap is somewhere else. I, th I think that is definitely part of it. Um, I do. So in the most basic sense, yes, that is what I think has happened. But I think it stems from or is related to other more glaring, in my opinion, uh, theological deficiencies in broader, even broader evangelicalism. Um, so you missed, or you mentioned earlier, Roger Ayer. Well, I've, I've been reading and I encourage everybody to get it in November, uh, Carl Truman's upcoming book, um, the, the rise and triumph of the modern self. It's, uh, will be very, it's not 
specifically about critical theory, but will be very helpful in helping navigate some of these things. Um, so I've been reviewing it. And Rod Dreher writes the foreword in that book, and he has a great line towards the end of his foreword where he says, uh, people have forgotten God, and so they've also forgotten man. Hmm. And that gets, I mean, he is an Eastern Orthodox uh, <laughs> a member of the Eastern Church, but it is exactly uh, Calvin's line, of course, that's, that's repeated over and over through Reformed theology of knowledge of God and knowledge of self going hand in hand. And what I uh, would point to is not, it's not a direct line, but it's connected, is uh, recently we had, we've had an ongoing uh, controversy in evangelicalism over the doctrine of God. Um, and the, uh, James Dozel and some other people were the, the ones that pointed out some deficiencies in that theology uh, from the perspective of classical orthodoxy and our confessions. Um, and people simply supplementing the words in the confessions with their own meaning, their own personalized meanings. And um, that theology is simply not being taught. Well, what I, in the Founders article I wrote, I, I deal primarily with Christian anthropology, because what I see as being part of the root of this is a deficient understanding of what man is. The, uh, the term the Imago Dei is thrown around all the time in these conversations without anyone ever defining it or reflecting on what it means. And the, in uh, even Reformed theology in the 17th century, you have a very close connection between um, how society functions, what it does, and, the connect and, and how you think man functions, what he is. And so part of my, my point is, in a roundabout way, part of our deficiency in understanding how to deal with sociopolitical issues that will inevitably arise is connected to our lack of really good anthropology that has just been something not taught very well in seminaries or elsewhere. I mean, I was, I was not taught some of the things I'm talking about in seminary. And that, in turn, uh, drawing off of Rod Dreher's quote I mentioned, is connected to a deficiency in understanding of God. So th these things all go together. I mean, the, w the phrase is thrown around all the time that politics is downstream of culture. I would say our, um, you know, it, almost any theological error you find is downstream of some bigger theological error that just went, uh, wasn't on everyone's radar. So I would say there's, there is some connection in evangelicalism, the uh, being ripe for this kind of thinking to come in and infect it, isn't somehow connected to resting on their laurels and not uh, perpetuating historic orthodoxy on certain key issues um, that has allowed them to be taken by some of this. Well, to that point that you know, these these things are going to uh, embracing this theory is going to reach out into other areas. Maybe there's someone listening to this podcast who a friend sent them the episode and said, look, please listen to this and I'll buy you I'll buy you lunch. But they're not persuaded. They think they can thread the needle and say, I'm going to make mm -hmm. use of some of the language of critical theory. I'm going to make use of some of the analytical tools, but it's not going mm -hmm. to affect it, it's not going to change mm -hmm. the way I feel about other. I shouldn't say other Christian orthodoxy. It's not going to bleed mm -hmm. over into the rest of my theology. Um, would, would would you have something to say to a person who's maybe entertaining that notion? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess I would say, one, I've seen people, um, if I was talking to them and, and not publicly, I would point them to the people I'm thinking of. But I've seen people attempt that move at the beginning. And they um, give it a little bit of time, and they end off end up way off the reservation. They will end, move from a uh, you know concern for for justice, which is 
a good concern amongst Christians. Again, something that is never defined by a lot of the people talking about it, and certainly not defined in a good biblical sense or even classical sense um, of each man receiving his due, but in, in a way that is, at the outset, already being influenced by some of these ideologies. Um, but I've seen people begin there and within a relatively short amount of time end up affirming transgenderism. And that's not by accident. It's not that they got a hold of two different bad things that are converging. It is a, a, the progression that flirting with this stuff leads you down. So, um, and this is a, an easy one. I mean, this is kind of the lowest hanging fruit. But if you get into thinking about justice and then um, along with it, oppression and society this way, you, especially in post-colonial theory, Christianity itself is a part of the oppressive apparatus. It is the, in fact, probably worse than the actual physical violence that was done during the actual colonial period. Um, so that because Christianity, they will say, was used to brainwash essentially uh, native populations, indigenous people, and destroy indigenous ways of knowing their epistemology and destroying uh, indigenous um, religious practices, obviously. So even those uh, colonial era missionaries who were not engaged in the, the project of conquest, but were genuinely trying to spread the gospel, they would be implicated in all of that. And the, the tendency for critical theory, and this is what 1619 Project does, is you push out history of, of actually bad things that we would all recognize as being detestable. You push them into the present as being uh, more or less the same. I mean, they will constantly talk about racism may be worse the, today than it was during the Jim Crow era. They really believe that because they think in some ways it's more insidious. It's gone underground and now is infecting or uh, controlling things in a in a deeper way than uh, that is less easy to criticize and point out because it's it's kind of hidden. They uh, post colonial theorists will say the same thing today. Any evangelical Christian missions work is by definition oppressive because you are destroying the indigenous ways of knowing. So what I would say to Christians who think they can dabble with this is if you're a consistent thinker at all, if you are committed to um, having logical thought, if you're committed to your system of theology being coherent at all, then dabbling with this will inevitably, inevitably lead you there. You will have to embrace that idea. And you can see Christians that have. They do do it, and they're well-meaning at the beginning, but they will end up realizing that they themselves are an oppressor. Their most deeply held religious commitments are oppressive. They are no longer should fulfill the Great Commission. They are, um, by their existence as a oppressor, in whatever way that is, perpetuating the status quo, which is oppressive. So they need to divest themselves of their inheritance, uh, which is now deemed whiteness, and uh, repudiate those things. Um, so that's a very, it's a very dangerous path to attempt to go down. Um, I don't know if that answers your question well, but I've seen it happen to people, and it's, it's always very disheartening, but it happens very quickly if they're uh, really investigating this stuff. Yeah, I think it answers it super well, and I, and I appreciate that. I, I, I think it's pretty easy to connect the dots from what you're saying about the broader culture trampling indigenous cultures uh, Christian missionaries in history being agents of that trampling to connect the dots mm. really quick to the Southern Baptist Convention as uh, an entity mm. born out of 
desire to maintain slaveholding for Christian missionaries. Um, mm-hmm. uh, one that is deeply invested in the missions work uh, around the globe today, doing again mm-hmm. in these categories, the kind of colonizing and, and trampling of indigenous mm-hmm. cultures you're talking about. I wonder, Mm -hmm. I I can't speak to this with objectivity uh, that I know this is going on, but there's a move afoot to talk about renaming the Southern Baptist Convention. And I have this suspicion that maybe some of that is an attempt to release the pressure buildup that you're talking about, where people realize, yeah, I'm dabbling in this. Oh, my gosh. Mm. Uh, Mm. Maybe this convention that I'm investing, I'm drawing a paycheck from is, mm. you know, a, a product of these evil forces. Maybe, you mm. know, it, the, the resolutions and the apologies haven't been enough. Maybe the way we break with that past is renaming ourselves like mm. it's, uh, again, a pressure release valve. Uh, I, yeah, there's no way for me to know it, but I'm just I'm looking at brothers who really want to love people. Well, they're making the mistake of picking this stuff up, or at least the mistake as I see it. And I, I just wonder if that's how they think they're going to get past the pressure they're feeling. Yeah, I I think so. I mean, again, a lot of this is reactionary and it's reacting, unfortunately, to the culture outside the church in many ways. Um, but it, but in some instances, certainly it's reacting to certain pockets of within the church, people within the church. And I've heard similar discussions uh, about renaming the denomination because uh, the people who are proponents of that uh, action would say that the Southern in Southern Baptist designates or invokes the not just a geographical location and not just a innocuous cultural element, but rather invokes the um, the essence of what they think the denomination is, which is a, a white supremacist one. That's it's founded. It's the same logic as the 1619 project in many ways of the essence of what this is, is completely determined by the events or the circumstances that we feel are the most relevant because we are critically conscious. We recognize the power structures. This is one of the things that has gotten us to where we are today in a negative way. And so we need to distance ourselves or relinquish um, that power from ourselves so that we no longer are oppressive, if that makes sense. So, um, I've heard similar discussions of it, and they've, I've never heard a good argument for doing it that doesn't seem to be influenced by some of this, uh, culturally acceptable way of viewing it. Um, and it, that's a, the problem is that's a very difficult thing to argue against with, unless you're prepared to get all of the labels, mm. unless you're prepared to be called the, the racist or whatever it is, which most people are not and don't want to be. Um, then it's a very difficult thing to, argue against that, that no, I don't want to uh, change the name. Um, right, right. It's the same same reason it's difficult to argue about uh, James P. Boyce not being removed from a building on Southern Seminary campus. Well, you know, your all of your arguments are going to be cast as uh, deflection, white deflection, and a bid for maintaining your power. Uh, the, the A very powerful idea that is out there comes from Derek Bell, who was a Harvard law professor and one of the founders of critical race theory, which is the idea of interest convergence. And interest convergence is the his theory is that white people only do things that benefit black people when it's actually beneficial to white people. So he would explain Brown versus Board of Education this way. He would explain the election of Barack Obama this way, that what happens is you come to a point where the white realize that their power is threatened and it's more beneficial to give in a little bit, to throw a bone to the black people, as it were, 
um, in order to actually maintain your dominance. So you do that hoping to distract them. You integrate the schools. You establish affirmative action, whatever it is. But it's really underneath it uh, a maintenance of your power. So you can see how this is all a very arid way of thinking, a very resentful and suspicious one. But that is how you will, um, even if you try to budge a little bit for people who are demanding you change the name or take someone's name off of the building, um, it can easily still be turned around on you again for you to, in fact, be forced to do more. So in some ways, there's a incentive um, or it's advisable for people to not budge on a lot of this because it's never ending. You'll have to, you have to choose a point where you stop. So if you really want to rename the denomination, do it for the right reasons. Don't do it because you're succumbing to the pressure, because it will just be the, the next year, it will be something different. Certainly, certainly. And I think, you know, if you're someone listening and, you're, and you are interested in the renaming efforts, maybe uh, if you're going to speak to that publicly, address the temptation Timon is mentioning here to, you know, that there may be a temptation to avoid the criticism and, and to avoid the labels that come with those who who might not want to um, to, to change the name for culturally acceptable mm. reasons. Mm. Well, friend, this is fascinating, and, and I so appreciate you. If I could maybe zoom back out a little bit to a more macro level, it, it mm. seems to me that there is still a bit of a controversy on evangelical Twitter uh, about whether or <laughs> not critical theory, critical race theory, is in fact its own worldview and its own religion. Um, I, I wonder how you would answer that question. And if you could maybe sketch out for us how you came to your conclusion on the question of whether or not critical theory is its own worldview and is its own religion. Yeah. Well, I think uh, just to throw out a resource that people can go to, to uh, if they really want to dive into this aspect, uh, James Lindsay, who is, is well known, of, you know, talking about critical theory a lot at this point, wrote an article, I think, several years ago now for Aereo magazine, which I've I've written for before as well. Um, a very long article, but I, I think if I'm remembering right, it's it's uh, social justice and postmodern religion or postmodern faith, something like that. If you Google it, you'll be able to find it. Um, and he is a, is an atheist. I mean, he's very critical of organized religion generally, but he was able to understand that this was has a, at least a religious fervor to it. What uh, Tocqueville used to recall, refer to as an evangelistic fervor in these types of movements. Um, he was able to recognize that very early on before other people were. And so I think the um, he, he does a good job of proving his case in that article. But just to briefly give uh, a description of how I view it, um, one of the things that makes me refer to it this way is a little bit of what I was talking about earlier of how the the worldview, if fully imbibed, forces you to in some way denounce what we would refer to as Orthodox Christianity. So anything that doesn't have room for your Christianity is doing something bigger than just giving you an analytical tool, right? Which is how the this, the Resolution Nine refers to this. Um, I don't even. It specifically refers to intersectionality also as an analytical tool. If you read actual intersectional theorists, as I said, uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, for instance, the founder of that idea, refers to it instead as a disposition or a sensibility, which must pervade all of your analysis. And so I think if you read critical theorists themselves, they would 
uh, in some ways reject this idea that these are just supplementary tools that we can kind of use and pick up whenever we want. As I mentioned earlier with the Ibram Kendi idea of what anti-racism is, it's all-consuming. It's You don't just get to say, well, I'm against racism. You have to be against every form of oppression, and they determine what oppression is. So a lot of these ideas are very um, comprehensive, and they, they will tell you as much. Um, and then how it works is sort of on the ground or, or in our lives, I mean, you can watch its progression in people if they are uh, being in some ways indoctrinated by it, they will continue to question more and more of their foundational assumptions that they have gotten from their Christianity. Um, it has a, a critical theory is obviously, uh, on the most basic level, a theory of society and a theory of history and a theory of man, what man is, just as Marx did all of those things. So when um, the only thing it may not have is a theory of God because it doesn't believe in a transcendent anything. So all of those go together. If you're answering those kinds of questions, you're not just asking a sociological question of what does this society do? Let's analyze it and it'll be helpful for us to understand people better. You're, you're, you're inaugurating not just a political program, but a life program. And that to me is the essence of a worldview. It answers the big questions for you. Who am I? Where am I going? What are we doing? What's my problem? Where do, what's my solution? It's answering all of those questions um, in an exclusive way and that it excludes answers given by other things. Um, competing answers are not allowed and they don't allow you to integrate the two. Well, so if we're if we're thinking about the relationship then between Christianity and critical race theory and and we realize there's efforts to sort of merge the two. Do you think we're talking more about syncretism or colonization? It is. Is critical race theory trying to be sort of meshed up with Christianity as a good partner, or is critical race theory taking over evangelical Christianity for those who adopt it? I, uh, as I have kind of hinted at already, I think the um, they are mutually exclusive in the end, um, despite uh, an, the initial efforts of some who want to dabble with this. Um, if you're going to be consistent, you have to choose at some point. Uh, you may still be able to to claim some kind of Christianity, just like uh, black liberation theologians uh, like James Cone would claim Christianity. But we know that it's something very different, which is a whole other topic about what that's doing in the SBC now as well. But um, the so I think they are mutually exclusive. I think people are attempting, as I said, to supplement their theology with this and not realizing what's probably going to happen to them if they try to do that. Um, and this, it also, I mean, I've, I've written about this somewhat in my, my Patheos blog, but the, um, what this does to human relationships is very distressing. And some of the, the best examples of that are, um, if you're looking at what, what could this do to my church? If a, if a critical mass of people started really taking this seriously, what would happen? And I think you can just look at the viral videos of people being accosted at restaurants and, and demand, people demanding that they put up the fist in solidarity or the way professional athletes in, in a different way, but a similar way are, are being treated when they refuse to, to kneel during the national anthem in solidarity with BLM. That's the kind of, of social pressure and what Roger Vokum again would call soft totalitarianism. Um, that's what we're looking at. And so the, I wrote an article a while back about uh, that was responding to one in the magazine called The, the Cut um, that was uh, sort of 
illustrating this this friendship between a black and a white woman. And it is, you can read it, and it's just uh, demoralizing to think that this is how our relationships should be modeled, of where it's constant suspicion and it's um, constant uh, one-directional demands against the, the other side of the friendship. Um, and for that to enter into our churches, uh, not only is it uh, totally infecting people's thinking and their theology, but will also infect their relationships. And it goes back to the, the hypothetical small group example you gave of beginning any statement with as a blank. Um, that, I mean, is, is you're looking at the beginning stages of what this starts doing to our communication and our relationships uh, with each other. And they, uh, I just don't see any correspondence between those, what that does to relationships and what the Bible tells us to do in our relationships. Um, as much as, as much as certain evangelical commentators might try to pretend like they're the same, um, I don't, I don't see them as being so. Okay. Well, uh, I appreciate you kind of letting me put a, a fine point on that to, to put my play on the table. I want to get to mm. your writing on integralism, which is a concept that mm. I, I met largely through your writing. Um, mm. But I kind of need to walk the bridge from sort of the religious worldview implications of critical theory to Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. and then on to the system for integralism. And so with with those religious implications on the table, uh, this question may feel out of left field. Um, but is it is it fair to say that Black Lives Matter is the national organization, uh, maybe most, uh, you know, most powerfully distilling critical theory into society and pushing mm. it as a cultural force. I, that may feel like a mm. softball pitch, but it's kind mm-hmm. of the next step in the journey I want to go on here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say it's it's of any brand one of the most powerful organizations in the country at this point. I mean, it's it's never went away after Ferguson, but this kind of resurgence um, in the past year or so has been extremely powerful. And one of the differences is it's uh, uh, corporate funding. I mean, it's huge right now, but also it's, it's really struck a uh, struck at the right time um, in a particular cultural moment and has, has gained a lot of influence that way. Um, and I would say most certainly, I mean, there's certain um, academics that have popularized this, such as Robin D'Angelo and Ibram Kendi, and um, so, some others that will be on the top seller list, uh, Reniendo Lodge, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, they'll be up there. They are ones are the most popular um, kind of evangelists of critical theory for sure. But in terms of which what organization or group is most powerfully pushing this, and in a way that's touching everyone's lives, I mean, BLM would certainly be that. There's there's no other rival to them in that regard. Okay. Well, thank you. And mm. listener, if you're like, I don't see the thread here, Jeff, just hang with me. Keep in mind the, the worldview implications of critical theory. Think about Black Lives Matter as a cultural force. Um, the, the third element here, the plank I want to get to is this concept of integralism. And on that front, mm. would you be so kind as to kind of sketch out for us what, what the term refers to? Yeah. So uh, what I can do is give the uh, quickly the occasion for some of this uh, this discussion about integralism that's going on. People may or may not be aware of, and then and then the basic idea of what it is. So it it's kind of come. Um, it's not it's not necessarily a new term, and it's certainly not a new idea. But it's become 
uh, joined the conversation again um, within this, uh, what is often referred to as post-liberal discussion, this post-liberal reassessment that is largely an intramural, intramural debate uh, within conservatism, political conservatism. And uh, as an unofficial kind of beginning of this conversation, we could look to the publication of Patrick Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, I think it's 2018, and then the famous debate between Sora Bamari and David French uh, at the Catholic University a few years ago, or maybe just a year ago, I can't remember. Um, but that be- began or, or serves as the unofficial kind of beginning of, of that whole debate. So what people are doing is trying to reassess or analyze what conservatism has been doing, especially since the Reagan years, and how relatively successful it's been, especially in the legal context. Um, and and then, you know, how it can respond to things that are going on right now. So a reassessment is an order. Integralism is an idea that's been uh, pushed by certain, um, specifically certain Catholic thinkers. Uh, Adrian Vermeule is probably the most well-known of those. Um, but it's drawing on older ideas from Catholic theology. And as I'll, we may get to in a minute, I, I consider them to just be generally pre-modern assumptions, not specifically Catholic ones, um, though you would have to modify depending on your religious tradition. But it comes from, it also often be called Galatian diarchy because it, the thing they will all cite is a letter from Pope St. Galatius to the, uh, the emperor in the fifth century. Um, and so the, the main idea is there are two, two powers that, that rule uh, over everything, over humanity. There's a temporal power and a spiritual power. And because man's spiritual end must um, stand over or subordinate uh, his temporal end, the church uh, must stand over in some respect, depends on how you organize it, um, the state. The, the church must take precedence over the, over the state, but not by violating the integrity of, of either power, because both are appointed by God to particular ends. Now, both the both powers have the glory of God as their final end, but they have differing immediate ends or proximate ends that they are working towards. And the churches would obviously be the spiritual well-being of man. The states would be the, the temporal safety and well-being of man as well, according to the common good. Um, and common good conservatism is a, is a term thrown around a lot now. Um, but the, you have these two coordinate states that have different competencies but are ultimately both directed towards the same final end so that the state needs to support the church in fulfilling its mission. And likewise, the church will, uh, in, in less tangible ways, support the state. And the state should look to the church for its standard of morality that undergirds all of its laws and policies. Um, so that, that would be the basic, I think there's, there's different versions of integralism, even amongst Catholics, but I think those would be the basic unifying ideas, um, that they are, that are in discussion whenever anyone invokes that, uh, the word integralism. How would you say that integralism differs from theocracy? Yeah. So, so theocracy is the pejorative thrown around at these people all the time. I don't, I don't know of any Protestants, uh, talking much about integralism. Uh, I've written a little bit about it because when I initially came into contact with some of these ideas, the, it was a, another thing of, you know, this is another Catholic conspiracy to take over the country. This is the Knights of Columbus or something, uh, you know, coming in, uh, to, this is Opus Dei trying to get power. But when I started reading some of the integralist arguments, um, 
I immediately recognized an affinity between theirs and what a, a, my favorite subject, which is the Puritans, Puritan political theology. Um, so the, the term theocracy is thrown at them frequently. But the difference between a theocracy um, and integralism is a theocracy, by definition, requires a priestly caste that rules the country. It rules both church and state. Um, and the two might even be indistinguishable. And so you have a priestly um, class that's in, in control. But in, the, in integralism, they don't want to violate the integrity of both powers. They recognize them as distinct, just coordinate. Um, and I, I often describe it to people as it's almost like a hypostatic union of there's mixed but undefiled, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you, you, ha- you don't want to violate the integrity of both natures. Otherwise, you end up with a third kind. Uh, of Christ that would then not be sufficient for um, uh, for our redemption, right? For a sacrifice, because he would not represent us uh, of what we are. He would no longer have a truly human nature. So Christ has two wills, and he has uh, he has the two natures, but they're unified in some mysterious way. And so this is a similar, not a perfect analogy, but a similar way of you don't violate both the integrity of both powers. God set them both up, but they do need to work together in a very close way because they're mutually dependent, even though one is should have priority over the other in the final analysis. And so a um, you know, priests or the, the religious leaders of an integralist society are not going to serve uh, in, in civil authority. Usually, I describe 17th century New England as essentially being integralist, um, but there was actually a law saying that pastors could not sit in the legislature. Now, that did not keep the legislature from frequently asking the pastors for advice on what to do. In fact, John Cotton and um, other uh, other well-known pastors at the time were responsible for writing up the first code of laws in New England. So there's a, a clear relationship and mutual dependence, um, but you're not going to violate those. So people like John Cotton or Richard Baxter would refer to the commonwealth they were in as a theocracy, but they only mean because the supreme priest must be recognized as being the ruler over all of it, which is Christ, obviously. The state must recognize Christ as the supreme ruler, but they don't mean that the earthly priest would then be in power in that way. Okay, so if I can maybe start tying some of the stuff together, I think you wrote, um, and and listener, I'm going to try to put links to all this in in the show notes. So if you want to start digging into it, hopefully you'll have those resources there close at hand. But you wrote what I think is a proof of concept with your piece on John Cotton that, yeah, integralism Mm. may be this Catholic concept about the relationship between church and state. But when you get to 17th century Puritanism, you've got a very similar model. and so. With, you know, for Catholic as well as in Calvin's Geneva, as well as in Geneva, which is the Puritans' model, they're looking to uh, Geneva and other things like that as as their model for uh, political life. Of course, that makes all the sense in the world, mm. and yeah. we know Knox called it the most perfect school of Christ, right? So that obviously the yeah. Reformed yeah. tradition is going to be is going to have a high view there. Mm. So Catholics would see, if I'm understanding you rightly, that the the Catholic Church would be the moral center that the state promotes. Mm. Um, 17th century Puritan John Cotton would say something like Protestant Biblicism would be the moral center that the state promotes. Um, Yeah, I think that I go ahead. Go ahead. Actually, I'd rather uh, for my point to stand or my question to even Mm. be worth asking that you'll have to speak to that. So I'd love to hear what you have to say. Sure. Um, I think the so you're absolutely right about what the the classic um, 
you know, this, this is before anyone was labeling anyone integralism in the medieval period, but you would always see the, um, the relationship between church and state being a Christian communion with two species of the same genus. And so you would, one species is the temporal power, one is the spiritual, and they would use the analogy of body and soul all the time. The soul is the church, the body is the, is the state. Um, they must be t- together um, in order for the commonwealth, which is the person, so to speak. You have a lot of um, uh, that talk, especially later in the medieval period, as, as personifying the, the community. Um, for it to be alive, it needs a body and a soul. It's a composite. Um, people like Richard Baxter would opt for um, the intellect and the will. The mm-hmm. state is the will, uh, the exercising power, but the church is the intellect. It is the informing power. It specifies what must be done morally. Um, and of course, they would all recognize that there's that one, you can't um, make laws even against every physical or uh, external sin. And you c- certainly can't make laws against what's going on in all of our heads. Um, but what you can do is uh, punish uh, as, a, as a civil, in the civil magistrate's role, it would be his duty to punish heresy and blasphemy and, and those types of crimes, because it's not an internal sin of thought. You are promulgating it to everyone else trying to corrupt them. So you certainly have to have a uh, something that's telling you what is the heresy, what is the false doctrine, and that would be the church's role in that way. And they've they're viewing society as this organism, and it all goes together, which is very different from our highly individualistic uh, time. But they so something must be the informing power of morality. And I think people like Cotton and, and Baxter, even though they uh, would reject the idea of any kind of global. Um, globalism out of out of Rome, um, they do want a national church. And so the church as the institution would still be the governing force. And then, of course, they want it to be a reformed church that mm-hmm. would then use reform doctrine to influence what is a heresy. So, so Simeonism would be one of those that you punish. Um, and, and things like that are maybe even Arminianism to some extent. So you, uh, you need the informing um, organ, uh, organ within the body to tell it what it needs to do morally um, to certain limits. So it's not going, the state's not going to do everything for you. But then the state realizing it needs that heart in it, it needs the brain in it to make it function, will protect the church as well, because the church has no uh, coercive power, only persuasive power. Well, thank you. That does that, does that make sense? Yeah. yeah, that's super helpful. And it's it's on that very point about the church identifying for the state the heresy the state should punish or guard mm-hmm. against that I have in mind. Um, I think it's in the John Cotton piece you wrote. If you'll allow me a quote, mm-hmm. uh, you yep. wrote, at its root, integralism is about recognizing the teaching function of the state, specifically its law. This, in turn, mm-hmm. is about recognizing that some governing moral commitment some concept of the good necessarily undergirds the law, is taught by it, and even justifies mm-hmm. the coercive force on the part of the state to preserve it. Uh, you quote Pink, mm-hmm. the state is not just a facilitator of protection and cooperation. The state is also a public teacher. Through its laws, mm-hmm. we as private individuals come to understand what the common good involves and how it should be pursued. Mm-hmm. So yeah. to, to pull the threads I've been kind of laying out here together, I'd, I'd ask you if it's fair to conceive of Black Lives Matter as an attempt to create a Marxist integralism within <laughs> the United States or uh, yeah. the West, because it looks to me like with the religious 
components that we've talked about, where they're talking about uh, dignity and freedom and human flourishing and justice, they they appear to be styling themselves as a moral center and then attempting to interface with the state, as you've talked about, even the state's own HR departments to enact legislation mm-hmm. and whatnot mm-hmm. to sort of, you know, I don't want to be too hostile here just as uh, trying to be as measured as I can, but to to sort of enforce their moral vision through the state mm-hmm. on the rest mm-hmm. of the citizenry. I, I, am I mm-hmm. being paranoid and seeing too much or do you think that that's there's some there's some potential there? No, I think I don't think you're, there's. I think there is some potential there. I I think the idea of an integralist Marxist state is one of the most horrifying phrases anyone's ever come up with. Um, so the, that that award goes to you. But the but I I don't think it's um, implausible to think of it this way. And and I say that because for a few reasons. The um the one piece I recent most recently wrote dealing with integralism was talking about how the the real utility of this argument being raised again, bringing in pre-modern assumptions about political life and society back into our conversation is not, as most of even the Catholic integralists will realize, it's not that uh, that entire program is really tenable at this point. And maybe it even shouldn't be where that would you know, there's things to talk about there. The real utility of it is as a descriptive mechanism that integralism describes not necessarily an aspiration, but rather is a realist understanding of what all states and societies are. And so there is always something that is serving as the moral conscience and the moral body that, or the, the moral organ that gives the body its life and its justification for what it, for its use of force. And even, I mean, this is something that I would say that critical theorists rightly understand. This is why a lot of this stuff hinges on um, legal issues, on law. The critical race theorists are first and foremost concerned with law. Kimberly Crenshaw's development of intersectionality is to deal with legal precedent within anti-discrimination law. So they understand that law is a, in some ways, a regime, and it's a teaching one. It re- both reflects and teaches. And this is not just something that, um, you know, they've made up, of course. There's a, there's some great writings from John Owen recognizing this. He would say, how do you, how do you get a society to have an understanding of the natural law that comes from God? That is, uh, Romans one and two talks about. You have, in part, it is in there, but it needs to be learned as well, especially the right conclusions to draw from the natural law about life. And the way you do this is in your society. One way is the church must teach, teach it. The other way is that your laws must reflect it. If you're, whatever your laws reflect, in some way, teach people what is good and right, not just in the immediate context, but in general, what is the, the good we're all after? And so I, I think that critical theorists in some way and different vocabulary being used, but recognize all of that um, and are very interested in what the, how the law functions. They would say it's an apology for power in some ways. That is kind of true, but that it's also a, a part of the hegemonic uh, regime um, that, that convinces you that everything is just and good, which they think is a lie. Um, but the law has to have some morality behind it that's informing it. Um, and so the analysis of integralism is simply drawing your attention to that. Uh, this is, we would, you know, Catholics might want it to be a Catholic integralism, but what Thomas Pink argues is just every state is integralist because it does do this. And in mm-hmm. some ways it recognizes that the moral good, I mean, just look at the, all of the lingo we've been talking about, the conversations we're referencing with out there in, in the cultural 
landscape, everything is couched in morality. There's nothing. There's nothing pragmatic about any of it. There's nothing that we would, you know, previously would have referred to as like bare policy of, you know, how are we going to construct our uh, parking ticket regime? It's all morality. It's about what is. Uh, that's what we're debating. And I think um, Ryan Anderson has written a great article. I think it's at National Affairs. Uh, I think it may be just called the Proxy Wars of Religious Liberty, something like that. And he just talks about. I mean. The, the legal victories won in the Supreme Court for religious liberty over the past several decades are great, but it's not good enough because what those really are are proxy wars about something deeper and more substantive that um, really gets at the morality of our society. What is going to what is the good we are all pursuing together? And then our laws should reflect that. Um, and they should preserve it with us. But the, it's a question of what is the moral teacher going to be? And a lot of our religious liberty jurisprudence is purely about preserving a personal private realm for you to essentially be a bigot if you want to. But that's about it. There's And, and Justice Thomas recently had great analysis in the Espinoza case uh, talking about this in his concurrence of the Establishment Clause has been so exaggerated that it has diminished the realm of the Free Exercise Clause to where now religion does not inform any of our public debates. So something fills the vacuum. And I would say that uh, critical race theorists and critical theorists generally, that is part of their project, is inserting themselves in that role um, because they think that is, is what the problem is with, with Western society. Um, it's fundamentally immoral in many ways and oppressive. Oppression is immoral. Um, so the, the things like Black Lives Matter may not be self-consciously uh, thinking, uh, mapping themselves onto an integralist analysis, but we need to realize that things are always competing for filling that role that the church should fill in an integralist uh, regime, right? So something is going to hop in there. We may have the theory of of a pluralist society is that you're going to have competition over that role, which is, you know, you could discuss whether that's good or bad. But the thing that the the post-liberal conservative critique has, has been taking up is we thought we were all playing by neutral rules of pluralism, neutral proceduralism. And actually, no one else has been playing that game but us, and we're losing because of it. That's kind of the basic, you know, in the most um, kind of crude way to put it. Uh, that whole critique and the one in which integralism has has arisen in, um, and I think it's very helpful as a as a tool to help think about what do societies do. And I think um, a lot of the integralist analysis is is absolutely correct about how things function because our society reflects human nature, and human nature has multiple needs, not just a temporal one. Yeah. Well, so I, I know I took it in a dark direction with the, the Marxist <laughs> connotation there. No, no. I, I, I love that one. I, I would say in a more positive sense, I know in my own conversations, uh, even mm. episodes of this podcast, uh, reading Baptist theologians who are self-consciously in the tradition that gave us the concept in a lot of ways of the separation of the church and state. Um mm-hmm. 2020, with the coronavirus, the protests, the riots, has pushed them to take a fresh look at their assumptions about the relationship between the church and the state, Uh, so much Mm -hmm. so that even some are looking at theocracy again. And I really, Mm -hmm. as someone who's kind of come lately to this concept of integralism, I I would say Mm -hmm. that concept, what you've written on it particularly, um, 
to anyone interested in that question, what is the relationship of the church and the state who's listening to this? Mm-hmm. Integralism should be one of the voices at the table kind of informing our mm-hmm. conclusions. And so I'm I'm thankful mm-hmm. that you wrote on this and, and, and brought it to my attention. I hope brought it to broader mm-hmm. attention. Yeah. Well, time on you. Yeah, I think it's, inc- it's very useful. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't mean to speak no, over there. I just wanted to say that you have been incredibly gracious with your time. This has been a conversation that was fascinating for me and super helpful. Um, I, I, I am curious. I know you write at Conciliar Post. You're active on Twitter. Uh, are those the places mm-hmm. you would tell people, hey, if you want to hear more from me, go check me out there. That's where I'm most regularly at. Or is there somewhere else? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty regular on Twitter. It's the only social media I'm, I'm fairly active on. Um, the, uh, I write at conciliar post regularly. I write at modern reformation, uh, regularly. And, um, I also have a, a blog on Patheos called the, uh, cantankerous Calvinist that you can, can look at. Um, and then I'm, I'm frequently at, at writing at other places, um, such as founders. I've written at some other, other places recently as well on a irregular basis, but, uh, those are the main, main places I hang out. Okay. Well, I'll also try to get those into the show notes as well for people who want to follow those links. Uh, the Twitter account is T Lloyd Klein and Lloyd is spelled with two L's. Uh, so if you don't want to look to the notes, you can jump on Twitter and get that. Hey, brother, thank you so much for your time and, and for your work. I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. love the discussion. Thanks so much for having me on. Thanks again to Timon Klein for his joining me on this podcast. As I mentioned earlier, you can find links to his writing in the show notes, including the pieces you have heard mentioned on this episode. Thank you for listening to the CRV Podcast. If you have enjoyed the episode, we would appreciate you taking a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, as well as telling a friend about our podcast. For everyone at CRV, I'm Jeff Wright, wishing you all the best in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 